You guys know how much I love nursing schools. Well, we have another one that wants us to tell you about their MSN and DNP family nurse practitioner programs. Samuel Merritt University has been educating nurses for over 100 years. And right now, they are offering tons of scholarship opportunities starting at $10,000 for both of these programs. You know, I'm in the midst of getting my MSN. And let me tell you, I wish I would have known about these scholarships when I first enrolled. Visit them at smumsn.com and show them how much you appreciate them for sponsoring our podcast. That's smumsn.com. I also wanted to remind you that if you're interested in travel nursing, to go to trustedhealth.com forward slash good nurse and fill out a profile so you can see what kind of jobs are out there and you can also see what they pay the stipend the hourly rate all of that i'm a travel nurse now with trusted health and i absolutely love working for them so go to trustedhealth.com be sure and put forward slash good nurse so that they'll know that we sent you there and fill out a profile today Hey everybody, this is Tina again with Good Nurse, Bad Nurse. Welcome back to our little podcast where we discuss nursing and healthcare and mix in a little true crime along the way. We have a great show planned for you today with some truly fascinating stories that I think we are going to be able to learn a lot from. I'm really excited about these stories. But before I introduce my guest hosts for this week, I have a couple of housekeeping things that I need to mention. First of all, the Redonda Vought case is going to be coming up in March. Uh, we're re- recording this January 7th, and Redonda's case is coming up in March. I believe it's the 20, 21st or 22nd, something like that. Redonda is the Vanderbilt nurse who was arrested because she made a medication error, and a patient subsequently died after she made the medication error. Her life has been completely turned upside down for the past two years, and she's going to get to tell her her side of the story publicly. She may be coming on the show. She's checking with her. I wrote out show notes and sent them to her. She's submitting them to her attorney to see if it's in her best interest to come on the show before her trial. So we, of course, want to do whatever is best for her. If there's any way we can help her with that, I want to use this platform to help any nurse who I believe that there's been an injustice served here for her. And so I want to use my platform to try to help her in any way that I possibly can. I would want someone to do that for me. So if she can, she is going to come on the show here in the next week or so. If not, I will at least do an update on her. So I'll, uh, in the next couple of weeks, we're going to, on the episodes that we release, we will be doing an update and kind of recap what happened and let you know what all's going on with her. Also, Stoggles, the company that does the really stylish looking safety goggles, sent me a free pair. And when I say they're cool, I, you will not even realize you're wearing safety goggles. They are so just beautiful. I can't wear them because I have prescription glasses. I actually reached out to them and I was like, hey, I actually have to have prescription glasses and they're going to send me a pair of those, but it's going to take a few weeks. But I want to extend these really cool stoggles to one of you. So this is what we're going to do. I want to hear from you guys about where you want the next Nurses PodCon to be. It's either going to be Nashville, Las Vegas, or Austin, Texas. And so if you will go to nursespodcon.com, there is a survey on there. You just click on the link. It takes like a minute. And on there that you heard about it from Good Nurse, Bad Nurse. And for all the people that vote on where you want the next Nurses PodCon to be, you'll go into a drawing and I'll send you that pair of stoggles. Let me tell you, they're, they're really cool. So, And we'll announce the winner in February. And one more thing, a lot of announcements for some reason at the beginning of the show. At the end of the Bad Nurse story for this episode, I am going to highlight a story that a listener sent in because For one thing, we have been talking quite a bit lately about domestic violence on this show, doing some stories to try to bring awareness. And so one of our listeners sent in a story that's very personal to her. I would just want to tell her story. It won't take long, a couple minutes. And so just to honor her and to thank her for sending that in. It'll be at the end of the Bad Nurse story. And before we get into our Good Nurse story, which, by the way, I'm so excited about because our guest hosts today are Amy and Sarah of the Gritty Nurse podcast. Welcome back, you guys. 
Thanks for having us. We're so excited. Yeah, thank you for having us. Well, I'm really excited to have you back. You guys have been on before. You're always great guest hosts. But I um, am excited to get to honor you both as the good nurse story today, because you literally are the epitome of what I consider good nurses. And that's not only in your practice, but you go out there and you advocate for nurses in Canada. You, you guys live in Canada. So you're out there all the time. I would see you on social media going on these news shows. I, I would be a nervous wreck. And you you guys are so poised. I, I'm, I can't wait to get into the good nurse story and get to, to talk about what all you do. I'm really excited about that. So we can get started with this bad nurse story. This is actually going to be two nurses, Anna Gail Soriano and Ruth Dorkson. And these are two registered nurses who are from Canada. Soriano graduated from nursing school in 1998 and got a position at Toronto's hospital for sick children right after she graduated. She was a new grad nurse, very highly regarded by her peers. Dorkson was a seasoned over a uh, night shift nurse at the the hospital for sick children also and again very highly regarded by her peers and supervisors at the hospital they both had excellent reputations to give you a little bit of backstory on the victim in this story we try to highlight that as much as as we can sometimes there's just not information but Lisa Shore was a typical 10-year-old girl who enjoyed outdoor sports playing with her friends and siblings and in the spring of 1998 she broke her leg on the school playground and spent the next several months in and out of various hospitals. So she was eventually diagnosed with reflex sympathetic dystrophy, RSD, a rare disorder that caused her to live with a severe burning sensation. So I'm assuming maybe some nerve involvement there. She was prescribed lots of different medications to help manage her condition, but her pain got so bad that her quality of life was significantly impacted. So late on the evening of October 21st, 1998, she was having so much pain in her right leg that her parents took her to the hospital. And she was assessed in the emergency department by a physician who was a fellow with the hospital's anesthesiology pain service. So the physician decided that her condition warranted being admitted to the hospital, but they apparently didn't have admitting privileges to her hospital, according to their policy. So they made a sort of unusual arrangement. And, you know, one thing that I, I thought of when I was first reading this is, well, bad things happen sometimes when we make exceptions to rules and we change up the way we normally do things. I think of, you know, children left in cars and, and that sort of thing, because we we like ruts. We like getting in ruts, right? We like to sort of be in a comfort zone. And when you throw us out of that, I don't know. I'm not saying that we have to be rigid and we always have to follow every single policy. I, I understand that, but sometimes bad things can happen when you, you know, deviate from policies that are there for a reason. So she was given morphine by IV in the emergency room, and then they were supposed to transfer her to an inpatient unit once her pain was under control. Now, this is a 10-year-old little girl, and after a few hours of being on morphine, she had very little improvement with her pain. How horrifying. I can't even imagine watching a 10-year-old girl as a mother. I cannot imagine how awful that must have been for her mom and for the nurses. You know, if it was me and and this, I, I, I always said I could not be in pediatrics. Mm -mm. No, me, neither me. Me neither. <laughs> Here she is after a few hours, no improvement. Her mother advised the emergency room nurse that her daughter would benefit from being able to rest. I can just see this conversation and the mom's going, she can't sleep. I hear this all the time. Uh, patients get finally get to the floor, whether it's the ICU or wherever, and the family's going, well, it, I, they couldn't rest. We couldn't rest down there. The lights are on. They're constantly in and out. They say that in ICU too, where they're just like, no one can get better here. You you can't rest. And it's just, it's a hospital. What are you going to, you know, you, you do the best you can. But So they're trying to accommodate her. I'm sure they're agreeing. They're thinking, yeah, that's probably true. About this, the time she drifts off and maybe is getting somewhat comfortable, someone's coming in and there's noise or, or whatever. So in the early hour, uh, morning hours, the emergency room nurse called Soriano, this is the nurse who was working on the, the unit at the time, to provide patient details, give, you know, give and report before transferring her to the floor. The emergency room nurse told Soriano that Lisa had been given some morphine in the emergency room and was coming to the floor with a PCA pump. She also said that Lisa was 
a stable patient, that she was being transferred to the floor to get some rest, and we'd be getting an epidural the next day. So I know it's I know hindsight is twenty twenty, but so many times in hospitals, I don't know how it is in Canada, but here it feels like necessary medical interventions are delayed because it's two o'clock in the morning and there is, yep. you know, yeah, it's all the, same the time. Here. Yeah, mm-hmm. it's the same mm-hmm. here. Because the doctor doesn't want to be called in the middle of the night for something that he or she feels isn't urgent, right? But as nurses, we have that sixth sense when something is wrong. In this situation, I can't help but think that if they could have just done an emergent epidural and not given the morphine, which obviously comes at a much higher risk, we wouldn't even be having this conversation right now. Before 2 a.m., she was transferred to the floor and her assigned nurse, Dorkson, was there. Dorkson and Soriano assisted Lisa and helped her get settled into her room. Now, there's different reports as to what happened next. Of course, there always are. But it would set the course for the events to come. Lisa was supposed to be put on a special monitor that measured her heart rate and breathing. Some reports say that when Dorkson attached the monitor to Lisa, she failed to ensure that it was properly functioning and correctly installed. I don't know what this, I don't know what this monitor is. I, if it were, because it's, it's standard monitors that we use in the ICU or even on PCU that I used to work on, it's obvious if it's not working. Right. It, you know. Well, there'd be some sort of alarm, right, to tell mm-hmm. you that it's not reading or whatever. Yeah. So there's some mechanisms that, uh, for example, a bed alarm, the, the, type, the type that you put under the patient, like on the mattress. I don't know if you've seen those or not. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And they plug into the wall. Now, that patient can be, have the, the, mattre- the mat under them that senses if they get up. and the, But if the cord isn't attached to the cord that's plugged into the wall, it won't do any good. So I don't, maybe something like that, maybe some monitoring device that is attached to an alarm, an actual alarm, not like telemetry. Maybe I'm thinking in my mind, yeah, you know, wrong about this. It's hard to imagine that they wouldn't have known. But if it is something like that, that if it's not hooked up, it doesn't, it's not going to alarm. Another report said that Lisa's mother was in the room while her daughter was being settled in. And she said that her daughter was never hooked up to any such monitor. I also, I, I like to interject here during this just because I can sort of, you know, visualize sort of what's going on. And I know that there are things that I do all the time in front of family members that they have no idea what I'm doing. And so... You know, you could easily like, for example, that bed alarm, if I hook that up, the family would probably never know. Unless you said out loud what you were doing, then they might not clue in because there's just so many wires and tubes Mm -hmm. everywhere. They don't know what everything does. That's a really good point, Sarah. And maybe that can help us learn something here that it is important to let the family and patient know when when possible, when it's practical and, and when it's you know reasonable, let them know what you're doing. Like, hey, I'm going to hook mm-hmm. this monitor up because this is going to help. If it goes off, I'll hear. State what you're doing to someone. If you're about to, even if you're just going to flush a line, hey, I'm about to flush your line. I just need to make sure it's patent. I would do this, you know, a f- few times a shift just to make sure that it's still working, that sort of thing. I think it's important to always do that. I think most nurses do. But if you get in a hurry, maybe you kind of get lax on some some things. And you can develop bad habits, especially in this day and age when they're, we're so we're dealing with staffing issues. And so people are, are pulled in every direction. And it's easy to develop bad habits. I've talked about that before on this podcast, how when you are given working conditions where you have too many patients, more patients than you can reasonably care for in a safe manner, you have to find ways to shave off time. You you can't possibly mm-hmm. do all the things that they say we're supposed to do. So you have to protect your license, protect your patient. You have to protect your patient first, protect your license. Uh, usually documentation is protecting your license. So you have to do what you have to do. And so you start shaving off like, well, I, I can't do that. And if it doesn't pertain to patient safety, those are the things that you tend to, you know, let go by the wayside, right? Mm-hmm. There were actually some other reports that said that Dorkson had actually turned off the warnings, like the respiratory warnings, because it kept going off and, and sending off false alarms. I've heard that there is some sort of monitor like that they send home with some babies that are at risk for SIDS. 
like apnea alarms. You know, our telemetry in the ICU can detect respiratory rate, and it is so inaccurate. It's uh, sometimes it's it's accurate, but a lot of times it's not. It is so inaccurate, and it can get so annoying because it'll say apneic, and of course they're not. You can literally they're right, breathing, right. they're awake and breathing. Like I remember when I was working in NICU, we would always have you know every baby's on oxygen set, CO two set, like all of that. But if you have a baby where it's not totally attached right or they're crying or they're flailing their legs that alarm goes off but I think as nurses we can decipher between what is a quote-unquote false alarm versus what is a true apneic event but in this case it's really hard to tell right because we're just seeing that it's an alarm we don't know what type of alarm we don't know how long it was going on for and I'm not sure if it's feasible to document all of that either but it just kind of makes me wonder like turning it off all the time you gotta if it's a true alarm you gotta address it and figure out what's happening with that child yeah and eyes on the patient's always kind of your best determinant of the patient status right like i think we rely so heavily on technology sometimes that we really forget that you know our a part of our jobs as nurses are to physically look at the patient and see what what's actually happening with them yes and I don't think this was an intensive care unit. I think it was probably more of what we would call a med surge floor. And they were just looking at it like, well, she's on a controlled pump that has a set amount so she can't overdose and probably just got a little too comfortable with that. Again, relying on that PCA pump rather than assessing your patient. And what happened is uh, shortly after seven in the morning, Lisa was found not breathing by Nurse Dorkson and some other staff, and they attempted to resuscitate her and were not successful. And she died because of this, because of, you know, it, it, it depresses your, morphine depresses your respiratory rate, and she went to sleep and never woke up, unfortunately, because of this morphine. I mean, so incredibly sad and tragic. I can't imagine the horror that the mother has had to live with, the whole family, all of Lisa's family. And, but these nurses, these are good nurses. This is no one, no, they were, they were never trying to be neglectful or trying to do anything obviously harmful. They were both accused of failing to monitor the morph morphine drip given to her. And initially they were charged with homicide in 2001. So according to reports, a doctor advised that the young girl's vitals were to be checked every hour. And further monitoring orders were placed on the hospital computer system that were never activated. Gosh, so important. Mm. So important. Monitoring every hour. That's, I mean, this was back in the day. This was like 1998 when this happened. That's more of an ICU thing here in the United States. If it's, if they're, if they're requiring every hour monitoring, usually on the on med search floor, it's like every four hours. From like even a quality improvement standpoint, just thinking about how this patient ended up on a med surge floor. She's a peds patient. Like there's so many things that I hope that there are some learnings that came from this because it's just like you can, the Swiss cheese all lines up in terms of how this, this error, this tragedy really occurred. It's really heartbreaking, actually. Yeah, and I know that working in the ICU, we have a lot of times order sets that are there. And I remember when I first started being kind of confused by it, because there can be a different order set, depending, you never know, you, you have to just learn which procedures if, if patients coming back from surgery, which one will have an order set. So you have to just go and so important to go look. And, mm -hmm. you know, in 1988, did they have compute, you know, I would imagine there was paper, yeah, paper. Mm -hmm. But still, you know, the import whether it was in a in an actual chart or in a computer chart, it's still important. Either way, nursing is nursing to check your orders and to see what what's there. And if they had seen, you know, Q one hour monitoring, if there is a, an order, I mean, if if you're if the doctor says Q one hour neuro checks, Q fifteen minute neuro checks, you better be documenting those. And if it's not yeah, and if it's not possible, if you if you say that's absolutely impossible, this is a med search floor, I can't possibly go in every hour and do a neuro check. You better be saying something. You don't don't accept that assignment if it because if you can't do it, if you can't document accurately that you performed 
that nursing intervention, you it's going to come back on you. Again, this is protecting your license. And so whatever that order was that the doctor put in, reasonable or not, that nurse accepted that patient, mm-hmm, you know. Mm-hmm. And I think that's why it's so important to do a thorough initial assessment, especially when you get a new patient and really make sure they're stable before you go on your day and do other things. Because I have a hard time believing that this child all of a sudden just stopped breathing out of nowhere. Like, I feel like there might have been signs leading up to it if the hourly checks were done and even involving the mother, right? So saying that you're doing the hourly checks and why, because I think the greatest ally um, a child can have is their parent because it's, you know, they're they're fully invested in their child. They are going to do everything they can do to make sure their child recovers. And I think, I don't know what happened there. Maybe they were all trying to sleep, but if we had involved the mother a bit more, maybe things would have turned out different. Again, she's asking to go to the floor because she wants to rest. She, sometimes family can be, and patients can be intimidating to nurses. They get mad at you when you go in there and wake them up. So you hate you hate to go in there. You're just like, oh, I know they're going to get mad. They got mad the last time I went in and they get frustrated. Mm -hmm. It's so important for us to do the professional thing. And that's to educate our, you know, stand your ground. You have to. The most important thing here, I think, would have been to say to the mother, she is, rest is important. Of course, we want her to be comfortable and we want her to rest. But this, the medication that is going into her veins right now that she's getting on a continuous basis can cause her to stop breathing. So we have to keep an eye on her. I have to come in here. I I don't, I, you know, I have to monitor her. I will be coming in here to check on her. And if you kind of establish that up front, even if it's frustrating to them, they at least will, hopefully will understand that you're trying to keep them safe or their family members safe. We'll take a moment to hear a word from our sponsor. You guys, a career in nursing is more than just a job. It's a lifelong journey of learning and growing. And professional development is key for any nurse hoping to advance their career. So how about you? Are you ready to take your career to the next level? If so, now is the time for you to get your certification in nursing. Earning your certification is a major professional milestone. It's a seal of approval recognized by professional peers, hiring managers, and patients. It signifies your commitment to excellence, your level of competence, and can make you more marketable in a competitive field, offering 18 different certifications, including 12 specialty certifications. Whether you're looking to earn your first certification, ready to renew, or exploring new certifications, they are there to make the entire process as easy, affordable, flexible, and painless as possible. Whatever your practice level or desired specialty, they can help you prepare your exam with a range of affordable tools and resources designed to set you up for success. And their commitment to you goes well beyond the exam. They provide all the ongoing support, advocacy, guidance, and resources that you need throughout your nursing career. This is your career, and you deserve the best. At ANCC, they're going to be there to help you every step of the way. So visit pages.nursingworld.org forward slash GNBN to learn more. That's pages.nursingworld.org forward slash GNBN. And we'll put that link on our website. If you want to just go to Good Nurse, Bad Nurse, you can click on it from there. Welcome, Leah. I just wanted to chat with you a little bit about your experience with CBD Stat. Which product do you actually use? So there's four products, the roll-on, the cream, the salve, and the oil. The two that I use every day are the cream and the oil. What is your biggest benefit? How does it help you? The cream I put on every day after work. I'll shower and then I'll put it on my feet just to help my arches. No more shin splints, just my feet feel more comfortable. And the cream has been a lifesaver there. And then I use the oil to help me sleep. So I just switched jobs. I had been working nights for the last eight years. So the oil was huge on helping me come home and actually get quality of sleep throughout the day. And I wake up feeling well-rested and not groggy like some other medications have made me feel in the past. I didn't realize that about the feet. And I have plantar fasciitis. So now I literally cannot wait to get off here and go try that. And then just the sleep benefit, that one is definitely well known. I hear that a lot in the feedback that I've gotten. As you guys know, their products are 100% THC free. CBD Stat has a team of engineers that invented a very unique and efficient process to produce CBD isolate, which is the purest form of CBD. They only offer very strong products, greater than a thousand milligrams. If you guys are interested in CBD stat in their product, you can go to 
cbdstat.care forward slash good nurse, bad nurse. Be sure and put the forward slash good nurse, bad nurse in there so they know that we sent you there. cbdstat.care. Be sure and put .care instead of .com forward slash good nurse, bad nurse. Well, the College of Nurses ruled that the cause of death for Lisa was by an unknown drug interaction precipitated by cardiac arrhythmia or an electrical conduction difficulty resulting in cardiac arrest. The college did not allege that they that the nurses were directly responsible for her death, but agreed unintentional human errors were, were made. So several areas of contention arose with the story. There were accusations mostly from the prosecutors of the case that the hospital attempted to conceal the truth surrounding Lisa's death and failed to take responsibility for it. This is sounding a whole lot like this case that I was talking about earlier, Redonda Vaught's case in Vanderbilt, because, because Vanderbilt did that very same thing. They covered up lots of things. They've never had been in any trouble whatsoever over it. So prosecutors also found fault with reports that indicated that the nursing staff performed hourly checks on uh, on Lisa. I guess they maybe were documenting that they were doing hourly checks, so they were questioning if they really were, maybe. Mm-hmm. Because what does that mean? Does that mean you just poked your head in, or did you actually go lay eyes on the patient? Did you physically assess the patient? Mm-hmm. If... For example, the doctor puts an order in that says, Q one hour vital signs. What are vital signs? Blood pressure, temperature, every hour temperature, or just a blood pressure and or just a heart rate or just an O2 sat. What what is it specifically that they're looking for? And a lot of times the orders will just say vital signs. So I don't know. I really don't know what are what are you covered? How are you covered there? If the nurse says, well, I took the heart rate every hour. It was on the machine. I could, I could see that. Um, or I could, I, I stepped in and, and counted her respirations while she was sleeping. I don't know. Mm-hmm. Lisa's lawyers also attacked the nurse's decision to not take blood pressure readings due to not wanting to wake her up when she had started to rest. And they argued that if the nurses woke her up to take an oral temperature at 5 a.m. that morning, which was hours before she was found unresponsive, why was her blood pressure not also checked? I guess they're thinking maybe if if they had taken her blood pressure at that time, it would have shown some kind of problem that was going on. Yeah, and maybe even just the the thought that doing continuous blood pressure monitoring. So like I remember when I had congestive heart failure, they ended up putting the BP cuff on me and it would go off literally every half an hour. And maybe they're just like, we don't want to do that because we need, we know she needs some rest. And they just thought it would, you know, disrupt her even more. I don't know what the rationale was. Yeah. I know in the ICU, we, we put, we'll put a cuff on the patients. It's hooked to a monitor and I can set it to go off every 15 minutes, every five minutes, every one minute, if I want to, depending on what I'm doing. And for example, if I were to start a drip on a patient because their blood pressure was really high and maybe I start a Clevaprex drip or something, I'm going to be monitoring that a lot closer. I am going to take it every five minutes or even three minutes or something because I need to see how to titrate the drip. But once I get them stabilized, I'm not going to keep that going. I'll change it to, maybe I'll change it to 15. And then when I say, well, okay, we're kind of stabling off here, we'll change it to 30. But and, you know, in an ICU, you're supposed to at least every hour. So you're not going to, but this is not an ICU. So it's really, it's different. And I'm just going back to the report where it said it was an unknown interaction. I find that very vague because we would have known everything the patient got from the time they stepped into the hospital. But I mean, I'm sure the mother would have mentioned and listed off all the medications the child was taking. So I'm not sure what that means either. I kind of wondered about that as well. Is that more speculation? Or are they just throwing that out there? You know, I was actually just assuming that it was the respiratory, or that she just sort of had an overdose of morphine, but it sounds like they're thinking something different. And she must, maybe in the autopsy, it showed a cardiac arrest, like an actual, some problem with the heart. But I don't know that much about autopsies and what shows up after death in these situations, but I don't know. Mm-hmm. Those are those are good questions. So accusations of inadequate police work and, and tampering with evidence caused the charges of homicide and criminal neg- negligence to be withdrawn. 
again, this, this whole thing is very sketchy. I mean, the whole story. And it was, you know, back in the day. And I do hope that it caused a lot of policy changes across the board from whoever, you know, the investigators, the hospital, nurses. Hopefully we can all learn from this, how better to handle a situation like this. So in 2005, the College of Nurses issued a one-month suspension for both nurses and ruled that they would face a reprimand before the panel. The college did not seek a harsher penalty due to the isolated nature of the tragic incident and the fact that they've demonstrated initiative to complete extensive mentoring and reorientation programs since the event occurred. They had never been in any kind of trouble before. They had, they had exemplary records. And they also considered the fact that those, those nurses had been in legal jeopardy since 1998, and this was 2005. They'd been raked over Seven the Seven years. That's mm-hmm. a long time, yeah. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah, and I, I wanted to do this story. For one thing, it was in Canada, and so you guys are in Canada, so i kind of getting your perspective on that too. But also, we, I, I, we are getting ready to, to talk quite a bit about the Redonda Vaught case, and I want to try to focus in on some of these cases where – Nurses are just doing their job, being human beings, doing the very best we can, being excellent nurses, and then something happens. And like you said, the Swiss cheese effect, all the holes happen to line up just at the wrong wrong time, and something awful happens, and now they're facing – their whole life is turned upside down. Because we, yeah. we know that our – our license is at risk every time we go to work. We know that. We know we can make a mistake and we can lose our license, lose our ability to work um, as nurses. But we're risking our freedom. Are we, you know, we're risking everything, years mm-hmm. off of our lives trying to fight something like this. I, I, I think that it's, it's, it's so scary to me because um, we're already in such... We, I was talking nursing shortage way before COVID. And now... Man, nursing shortage is just, it's not even the right word. I don't even know what you call it. Yeah, it's like, I think about what those nurses went through, seven years of this hanging over their heads. And I guarantee you that even after it was resolved, it continued to follow them for the rest of their careers. Like even the initial charge of homicide, even though it was withdrawn, I don't know that it would have changed some people's opinions of what happened. Just knowing that the charge initially was laid, it just kind of sets the tone for everything else that comes afterwards. It makes me kind of wonder, like, where was the union? That's a really, like, the biggest piece. The whole point of, you know, like, having a union is for them to to back you to say, hey, you know, this is what might have happened. And maybe the error was more based on systems and processes versus, you know, an individual, like, Mm-hmm. What was the union's role? How could the, how could this have gone on for so long? It just begs to question about like what's the role there, right? And I'm just gonna jump in here. I know that currently that hospitals nurses are not unionized. I don't know yes, about you're right. Yes, I don't know about back time. in the day, but currently that hospital doesn't have a union, and you're that right, might Sarah, have been yeah, the I issue. Yep. So oh, so in Canada, yes, I would kids. say like at least where we live, ninety percent of the hospitals are unionized and this hospital is one of the few that is not that might have been that the issue yeah i think that that's a, that's actually a really good point because yes yeah, sick kids currently for sure is does doesn't have unionized staff so geez that's again like another another thought for nurses out there right like if you're working for a non-unionized hospital how do you make sure that you get protections right and make sure that your license is safe or that someone else might be able to protect you so like i know here we have the rnao that offers protections outside if you don't have a union but yeah that's that's a really good point sarah Mm -hmm. and i don't know how things work in the states in terms of protection but the unions typically will protect you in these types of cases. But as Amy was saying, if you don't have that, you can have the option to buy your own to buy, um, yeah. le- legal protection as a nurse. If you were, say, working as an independent contractor or you were working for an organization that doesn't have a union, to always have something to protect you in these types of situations. Yeah, and there is malpractice insurance that nurses can get. Some states have collective bargaining or what we refer to as collective bargaining and unions but the there are many states in Tennessee where I live is one of them that are considered quote right to work states and so you do not have collective bar- bargaining there is no you have 
they can fire you for absolutely any reason, any reason. Really? Mm-hmm. Yeah. And you can quit for any reason. I mean, it's it's like you have the right to quit and we have the right to fire you. To fire you. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And, we, and they don't have to have a reason. So <laughs> it's another reason to maybe stop and think about whether a, lo- a lot of people in the United States believe in the concept of every man for themselves. You know, you if you want a better job, go get a different job and it will all come out in the wash. It's right, not right. It's, it's not working out that way. I, I just want to point out that the capitalist idea that, you know, the supply and demand and that if you need more nurses, then hospitals will pay more the way it supposedly works in corporations. If they need software developers, they have to pay for software developers. And if there's a shortage of software developers, then their the salaries go up. It's not working that way for nurses in hospitals. Just saying. It's just not. Mm-hmm. We have that same problem in Canada where there are a lot of agency nurses that are supposed to fill the holes, kind of like travel nursing. And, you know, even at, I, I heard that over the hospitals, they, like the holiday period, even paying them two or three times their normal hourly salary did not get enough staff coming in. So it's not always about the money. No. And for a lot of nurses, I think money is secondary. Money is very important. And I say that a lot too. I want people to realize that know your worth and it's okay to ask for more money. It's okay to want more money. There's nothing wrong with that. We're we're not talking about wanting to live some lavish lifestyle. We're talking about wanting to provide for your family, wanting to have a retirement to be able to, you know, at some point, not have to worry about what's going to happen to you when you're no longer able to work. This, these are all very important things, and it takes money to be able to do that. So there's nothing wrong with demanding what you are worth, what your profession is worth, what the amount of responsibility that is placed on our shoulders is worth. There's nothing wrong with that. But but I think for most nurses, even more important than that is being treated res- with respect, being treated fairly, being given assignments that are safe so that you can do your job well. We will absolutely sacrifice ourselves, but when we get to the point that we're sacrificing ourselves and still not able to do our job safely, that's when we're out. And I think that's where a lot of nurses are right now. This is just random aside, but like, yeah, we captured some of this on the collective roundtable that we did. And it's true. Like, I think we're being, nursing is being stretched beyond the limits. And I think we need to do something radically different or nursing is going to be in a very, very dark place. Yeah. And I think about all the unsafe situations nurses are in right now. And sometimes these lawsuits, they don't come out for some time. I know when I used to work in the neonatal pediatric department, the families, they actually have up to, I think it's 18 or 21 years to come back to the hospital if their child happens to develop a situation or a condition where it was traced back to something that happened at birth or in the hospital, they can still come back many years later. And it's really the only thing you have is your documentation after that many years. You're not going to remember what you did after after all the patients you've had. And when you're so stretched and you can barely provide the care, let alone document what you've done, nurses are in a really tricky situation and it's not their fault. It's It's the healthcare system that's broken. Yeah, I agree 100%. We're going to keep talking about this in, in future episodes because I'm not going to quit. <laughs> I'm just not going to quit harp- harping on it. I want to take this time, as I said earlier, to highlight a story that was sent in by one of our listeners named Cheyenne. And listening to the story that we did on Tracy McCarter, the nurse practitioner, who is still on house arrest right now in New York because she survived an attack by her ex-husband, who was her abuser, and he attacked her in her own apartment, and she protected herself, and he died subsequently, and now she is facing a murder charge. So again, we're trying to advocate for her. Her, She has a court date coming up January 14th. And they're hoping that the DA, the new DA is going to drop charges. So hopefully that will happen. But in hearing that story, Cheyenne was reminded of a story that happened involving an, a nursing student. This person's name is Elena Hardy. 
She was a nursing student at Hunter College and was pursuing her a bachelor's degree. She was described as being a kind and loving person who enjoyed life. She had an apartment in East Harlem, New York, and developed a relationship with her downstairs neighbor, Fernando Manera, who was 26 years old. Manera and Hardy were opposites, apparently. Manera was allegedly reported as being jealous and controlling. He would monitor her location, screen her phone calls, and even persuade her to stop communicating with friends and family. Sounds familiar. He developed a dependency on prescription medication and alcohol, and then started abusing her after he started drinking and using the prescription medications. So their relationship became very volatile. Law enforcement was contacted to her apartment um, at least five different times. Some reports indicate there were more than five 911 calls. The violence culminated into a restraining order when Manira locked her up in her bedroom and took her phone away from her. He also vandalized her apartment. He was charged with imprisoning her, harassment, and property damage. The presiding judge issued a temporary order of protection against Manira that forbid him from contacting her, even though they both resided in the same apartment complex. The restraining order proved to be difficult to follow since they're obviously so living in such close proximity. They continued to communicate with each other. And then on the night of May 19th, 2021, Hardy called 911 to report that Manira was attempting to break into her apartment. But by the time officers arrived, Manira was gone. A police report was filed and officers left the residence. They did not pursue him. Manira returned to her apartment about 30 minutes later and accessed her residence by uh, going through the fire escape. He proceeded to attack her with a knife, stabbing her multiple times over her body and neck. She desperately fought back and managed to stab him in the chest and neck. And then tragically, she succumbed to her injuries. He was arrested and has been charged with murder, burglary, and criminal contempt. Obviously, the police department has faced uh, scathing criticism because of the way that they handled this and obviously failed her. I'm, I get so sick of these stories. I, I, I could talk nonstop about all the stories that I read about because whenever I'm researching, and th this was not a good nurse or a bad nurse. This was just a story sent in by a listener that I wanted to talk about because we have been talking about, like I said, domestic violence so much on this podcast. And uh, we want to bring awareness to these things that happen. And we want to try to hopefully empower people who are in these abusive situations to do the right thing and try to safely get away and get out of these situations. But it's it's not easy. And we, we of course, we recognize that it's not easy. But I really appreciate Cheyenne for sending in that story. And I'm really sorry that that happened to your friend. Yeah, like, I mean, just to kind of highlight that there's been a lot of discussion about like femicide and these rising levels of abuse towards women in general. There was actually like a report I saw recently where they were, they were talking about these various different things about domestic dis uh, abuse. And one of the the things that was highlighted was like the most critical time and the, the, the most likely time that um, femicide would happen is like right after a relationship breaks up. So they, I don't know, like in, even in this report, they kind of said like police know this. They know that um, these individuals, these women are at higher risk when they, when they do leave. And like this particular case, like it was like, it was like half an hour. Like it, I don't e I don't even know what to say because that's, that's again, yeah, worst case scenario. And women do need much more protection. The law needs to be much more stringent when it comes to these particular cases and prosecuting these cases and and also just identifying that women need better supports in place when we are calling four, five, six times about someone who um, we're having these types of interactions with. And like, I don't know, I, I've done a couple, a, a lot of reading on this too. And it's just, it's women for whatever reason, still aren't taken very seriously when we have these conversations, when these things happen. And it's it's not as easy to say, you know, you just can get up and leave. There's a lot of psychological harm as well. And again, like like I said, that risk is so great for that femicide to occur. Like we we do need stronger policies and things put into place, like and protocols to make sure that women are protected and I don't know. It's just this. I'm, that was that was a very difficult situation to hear. Yeah, and I think that women who are going through something like this often blame themselves, and 
they shouldn't or they feel judged when they tell somebody what's happening. And I think if this is happening to someone, you know, the best thing you can do is be there for them and support them because we know statistically it takes sometimes many attempts for a woman to leave an abusive relationship before they can leave for good. So supporting them every step of the way is really important. Being there for them, letting them know that it's okay that you went back, try again to leave, I'll be here for you. And um, just raising awareness. I think that nobody is immune to it. It's not that women who are in abusive relationships fit a certain mold. It can happen to anyone. And just being aware of that is really important. That is so true. So I have to tell you guys about an experience I had with a nursing student. So you know I've been doing travel nursing. Well, this hospital where I'm at has a lot of LPN students doing their clinicals there. So one of them was following me around one day and she noticed my stethoscope. And of course, Y'all know the Echo Technology Company that sponsors our podcast. They teamed up with Littman to make the stethoscopes, to beat all stethoscopes, the 3M Littman Core Digital Stethoscope. And this is the one that I use now. So she said, oh my gosh, I've been wanting to try one of those. So of course I let her use it. And she just could not stop talking about it for the rest of the shift. It was so cute. She was like, you know, I can't hear anything with my normal stethoscope because I have tinnitus. And so she was so excited because she could actually hear what heart sounds were supposed to sound like. She said, I'm going to ask for one of these for graduation. And I was like, yeah, you definitely should. So just so you know, the echo technology that makes the stethoscope so amazing. Uh, you can enable it with a flip of a switch. You can turn it on and off. It has active noise cancellation up to 40 times amplification, wireless auscultation using Bluetooth technology. It connects with Echo's free app and software so that you can visualize, record, share, live stream, analyze heart sounds, lung sounds, and whatever body sounds you want to listen to. So you can go to echohealth.com and use the promo code GNBN to get 10% off your order. And that's Echo is spelled E-K-O, by the way. So it's echohealth.com and use the GNBN promo code to get 10% off your order. Did you know that you don't have to go all across the country to be a travel nurse? You certainly can, but you don't have to. I literally took an assignment that's an hour and a half away from my house, and I love it. I can stay in a hotel room if I want, or I can drive back home. So it's the best of both worlds for me. For my next assignment, we're going to get a cabin in the mountains that's about two hours from our house, so it'll really be like a little getaway. Also, one of my really good friends is going with me so we can share expenses. You guys, even if you're just a little curious about travel nursing, go to trustedhealth.com forward slash good nurse and fill out a profile so you can see what kind of jobs are out there and what they pay. Go to trustedhealth.com forward slash good nurse and fill out a profile. Well, I want to get into our good nurse story. I'm really excited uh, to get to highlight both of you. Very, very proud of both of you and all the work that you guys do. You work tirelessly. I see you. I know it's almost hard to nail you down, especially both of you at the same time, because you're so busy in your personal life and your professional life. So Sarah, I'll start with you. First of all, just tell our listeners who you are, a little bit about what kind of nursing, your nursing background, uh, where do you come from as a nurse? Okay, so um, as as you know, I am in Ontario, Canada. I was born in Canada. I went into nursing actually right from high school. My mom was a nurse and I kind of wanted to follow in her footsteps, even though she told me not to, I did anyway. So I, I did a four-year Bachelor of Nursing degree. And then at the time, all of my classmates wanted to go into obstetrics. And I, I somehow won that lottery. I did my placement in labor and delivery. And I kind of stayed in that area for about 10 years. So I did uh, postpartum. I did level three NICU. I did some uh, prenatal teaching. And in that time, I also got my master's of nursing. So about eight years into my career, I moved into nursing leadership. So I worked as a clinical nurse specialist in obstetrics. And I've also worked as a professional practice specialist covering pediatrics and NICU. I've done a lot of things in my career. And then, as you know, most recently, we started this podcast and we've gone on this journey of advocacy work. I'm also really passionate about helping nurses with their careers. So I do um, some of that work as well. That's me in a nutshell. And Amy and I are just really wanting to talk a lot about issues that affect nurses. So we started this podcast actually before the pandemic. So it was never meant to be a podcast about the pandemic, but more about issues that affected us, such as bullying, racism, uh, lack of mental health support for nurses, and all of the other challenges that we experience. And just to amplify people's stories and bring awareness to the public about what nurses go through and what our lives are like. 
Well, it's an excellent podcast. And you guys are both so good at going on these news shows. I, I feel like I would <laughs> absolutely die. I could I don't think I could do it. I like the recorded podcast that I get to do. So I have control over it. If I, you know, start stammering or completely go blank, I could, which I which happens, as you guys saw, I, I, I'll sit here and just be like, where am I? And I'm literally I have everything in front of me. And I still will just go, huh. I forgot where I was. <laughs> so I'm really <laughs> proud of you you guys for doing that. Amy, can you give us a little bit of your background? Tell us where you come from. Yeah, for sure. So I, I'm, a, I'm a nurse as well in Ontario, Canada as well, born here as well. My journey into nursing was actually because of my grandfather. So my grandfather was palliative. I was probably around maybe like 14, 15 years old. And I was watching how the care was being delivered to him. And I felt at that point in time that that they could do better. <laughs> and I and I said, you know what, instead of putting the onus on someone else, I want to be a part of that. I want to be a part of that patient journey and that patient experience and to be able to care for an individual who might be dying or, or may need my support. So my grandfather was my inspiration to um, get into nursing. So I, I went to school, I, be, I did my BSCN, so like my bachelor's degree in nursing. I came out, I practiced nursing for a little bit in labor and delivery. That was my my area. I really loved that area. It was kind of funny that I didn't go into gerontology. I, I went the complete opposite direction. I, I did spend some time in education. So I also was an instructor at Sheridan College, also did some teaching at U of T. And then I also did my master's degree becoming, uh, and then doing some work as an educator and a professional practice clinician, again, in maternal child. And yeah, we, we started a podcast and I think that grew out of some challenges that I think are actually not unique to nursing, just that we don't talk about it very much. So we both had issues and challenges with being bullied. And um, surprisingly, I think people think that, you know, lateral nursing violence is just, you know, peer to peer at that same level. It can happen from, you know, executives that are nurses to, you know, their, their, um, their managers from their managers to educators. Like it, it doesn't necessarily stop the, the, that lateral violence can just occur in just different uh, facets. And we said enough, like, we're like, you know what, we need to blow the lid off of this and we need to talk about it because it's a huge, huge problem. And that was kind of the impetus behind starting our, our podcast uh, because we said, you know, nursing needs a voice. We don't know who's going to listen, but we're going to just, we're going to share our story and hopefully that'll resonate with other people and other, and we, we wanted to share other people's stories. So that's kind of what led us to where we are today. And, um, Honestly, the media and all that stuff is kind of, it's its just a, pe a small piece of the, the puzzle, really, that in terms of the work and advocacy that we do, because we really think that, you know, nursing is a great profession, but we also recognize the importance of advocating for ourselves and making sure that our voices are heard, because I don't think we would have been in this big of a mess of the pandemic if they actually had nurses sitting at the table helping making some of the decisions that are made today. So that's kind of our story, I guess, kind of in a nutshell, just bringing other voices to the forefront. And then again, talking about mental health, anti-racism. I've always talked about health equity as a really important facet. And um, yeah, that's kind of... Mm -hmm. the stuff that we do. <laughs> and I'll just jump in to say that we never planned to do media. It was just something that came. And the reason it came is because Amy actually called out a doctor for not having a nurse's perspective when they were talking about nursing issues. About nursing. <laughs> and that got the ball rolling. And it's something that you get better at with practice. I don't think I'm perfect by any means, but I'm willing to put myself out there. And the reason that I do it is for nurses because... We've always been overlooked and overshadowed by physicians, um, and and it needs to it needs to go the other way a bit too. Well, it's really important what you guys are doing because, like I said, it's 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 I can't imagine anybody listening to this podcast would think it would be easy to go on. And we're talking about like Canada's version of like CNN. I mean, we're it's it's like the national. It's national news. sometimes. Yeah. yeah, yeah. So that to me takes it's take so much courage to just be able to to put yourself out there you you know answer these questions and stand up for nurses so you guys think about that would you be willing to if a if a news organization came to you and said hey 
we want to ask you some questions about uh, the healthcare situation, about COVID, about working in the hospital, about staffing issues. Can you be available to answer questions on this news show that's going to show that's going to air nationally? I don't know if very many people that would be willing to go. Sure, I'll do that. So I appreciate you guys for doing that. I really do. Yeah, th- thanks so much, Tina. And I think. We have to think about it in terms of, you know, there has been, unfortunately, some historical situations in which nurses have spoken out and have gotten in trouble for it, right? And I think, again, when I think back to those situations, for the most part, if you do some really, really good research, it's typically a nurse who would get in trouble would be maybe they breached patient confidentiality or, you know, there was something else that was said. But I think the realm in which myself and Sarah speak from, we we definitely speak from our own experiences. We never bring in um, patient-specific information or, or or breach hospital confidentiality. We don't call out specific hospitals, um, but we do share, you know, our viewpoints, our ex- our experiences, and kind of what we're seeing in the healthcare field. And I think I think nursing needs to do this. Like I think this is the work that we all should be doing. Like I mean. It, I'll be honest, in, in Canada, it, it does rely on, it seems to be bounced around by maybe, maybe you know, a handful of nurses that are doing this, but I think this work should be shared. And there is that real fear of retribution, getting in trouble by your organization. But this is where I think I would say, take a real good look at what your policy, your hospital policy says. And typically for the most part, it says that you should not speak on behalf of the hospital. We never speak on behalf of the hospital. We speak on behalf of Amy and on the behalf of Sarah. So that's why we always make sure that, you know, we're aligning ourselves in in that manner. And I think that if other people, you know, can take that step, like we're still here. So we've been doing this for two years, which is crazy. Mm-hmm. And we're still here, right? Like, I mean, we've called out political leaders. We've sp- spoken to our prime minister, Justin Trudeau. We've pretty much done it all. We've done print. We've done radio, radio. There's a little film thing coming up that we're going to do this week, uh, next week we're still here. And I think that's what I want other people to realize that like you can speak to the media, you can speak up, you can have that voice in that agency and still be here. Like I know that there's probably some different provisions in the States, but I'd say again, just make sure that you look at what your your hospital policy is and they can't silence you for speaking about your own opinion. Mm-hmm. And and there's different ways to advocate. So I understand that media is not for everybody, but you can get on social right. media. You can you can start your own account, right? So you can you can go on Twitter, Instagram, Facebook, LinkedIn. All of those are still platforms that you can build up your voice and you know start to gain traction on what you want to share with everyone. So we do that as well. And honestly, we have more followers than many other organizations, um, including ones that we've worked for. So. You start to build up this reputation, right? And people look up to you and they care about what you have to say. So that's another way to do it if you don't want to, you know, go live on air and be worried about what might happen in on a live news channel, right? So I think it's just finding a way to have your own voice and sharing the issues that affect you and that affect nursing and healthcare. Yeah. If this pandemic hasn't revealed the importance of social media and the importance of, you know, um, evidence-based quality health information, like I, I don't know what other time it would be best for healthcare providers to be on social media. It literally is the engine that has driven the disinfodemic, the infodemic, like it's I never would have thought that Twitter would have been a place where one, I can engage with a lot of great healthcare experts, but then two, to combat that misinformation. Like there's so much, I'm sure you you know it, Tina, especially as like Canada, the same as the US, like the problems in terms of vac. I, I hate the word vaccine hesitancy, but you know, the concern of whether, you know, it's, a conspiracy or the like those thoughts are out here too. And I think it's so important for healthcare professionals to be on there to say this is not true because 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 you know we've been locked down, we've had these things where like where are people getting their information? They're getting it from Facebook, they're getting it from Twitter. People aren't sitting and watching, you know, 
CNN. They want their news clips in small little bites and they're getting, they're getting it from TikTok. At least make sure you're getting it from a credible sources. So it's so important for healthcare professionals to be on there to put out the right and the most accurate evidence-based information out there. And Sarah, you also help with resumes. Do you have, uh, do you help people with resumes too as well? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I actually have a website. It's the rnresume.com. So I help nurses mainly with their resumes, cover letters, interview prep, career coaching. I feel like this is something that isn't covered in nursing school. And it's so important if you want to further your career, you want to change your job. And it's not that I feel like people can't do it, but there's a way I think that you can highlight your skills and sell yourself. And I know I'm not always good with that. And I feel like as nurses as women we kind of we kind of you know we're humble we feel that our actions will speak but when you're trying to further your career or even move to a different organization you really have to sell yourself and we're not taught how to do that so and and what i noticed during my time in leadership is that nurses would often come in and be really unprepared to answer basic questions that we would ask in interviews. And I thought, like, I can tell deep down these are great nurses. But if they were coached a little bit or given some tips, I think they could have done a lot better. And same with resumes. I felt like a lot of times what the resume looked like didn't match the person that I saw. I saw that this person was a great nurse, but the way that they wrote down what they did, it was like, I'm a little confused. I'm not following. But but these are skills. These are tangible skills that I think all nurses need. And if I can help nurses in the same way that I've helped patients, then then it's a good day for me. Well, I think that's great. I think there are a lot of resume help resources out there, but to be targeted specifically for nurses, that's really important because I mean, the, the terminology, the medical terminology, the things to focus on, what to say, how to say what you do, what you did. I, I in creating my resume, I, I would sit there and be like, I don't know what I did. I just, I don't know how to say this. So I think to have some help with that, it would be huge. So yeah, that's, that's a great resource. And you guys, are you still doing the apparel? We, no, we no. have too We've much diverged. on our plate. <laughs> Maybe we can we, cut that out. No, we didn't have the bandwidth to continue on with the apparel line. I think as with starting anything, we were kind of like, hey, you know, maybe we can get our message out in another way. And, and you know, it's, it, it's actually a learning opportunity in terms of just a business management, just being like, that didn't really work out the way that we, we thought it would. But I mean, it's also, again, an opportunity to, to do things differently. And I think we kind of figured out what our niches are. So I do that all the time. I think that probably we're all very similar. Anyone that who's starts a podcast or does things like this, we tend to have creative brains, uh, that side of our brain working as well. I know that one thing thing that happens to me is I get ideas all the time pop into my head, and I get so excited about it. And I want to start doing it. And before I even finish that, I, <laughs> I get another idea. So I, I tend to have to like, calm Who down. Does that sound like Sarah. <laughs> oh, my gosh. <laughs> I started a document. So anytime one of us came up with an idea, I'm like, add it to the document. And we will have to prioritize because Personally, I can only focus on one thing well at a time versus trying to juggle five things and do them half. You know what I mean? Yeah. <laughs> so we had to start I'm like doing you, that. Tina. I'm like, I want to do this. I want to do that. I want to do that. Like, I mean, I we are so busy. <laughs> it's unreal. Like, I mean, I I just recently took on another role with a company called Canadium. So doing being the director of multimedia there and doing some work for like emergency medicine. And it's just, it's crazy how the podcast really opens a variety of different doors in terms of making sure that, you know, our advocacy doesn't just stop at nursing, that it's advocacy in, in healthcare in general and is and has been, has kind of afforded us to meet some really great people and do some really great things. So That's awesome. Well, I really have enjoyed having you guys back on the podcast and being able to highlight Uh, your careers and what you guys are doing out there advocating for nurses in Canada. And really, uh, you're not just Canada, you are on social media, everyone can see you all over the world. It's very empowering. It's very encouraging to hear you guys on there 
talking talking to the prime minister. I remember when I got that clip going, what? Is that who I think it is? It was so awesome. But way to go, you guys. Thanks so much, Tina. Thanks for having us. Remind everybody where they can find you. The easiest place is to go to our website, so grittynurse.com. And, you know, we you were pretty active on Twitter. So our handle there is Gritty Nurse. We're on Instagram as well as LinkedIn. So you can find us um, on all of the different major podcast platforms if you just Google Gritty Nurse Podcast. And you guys know that you can find us at goodnursebadnurse.com. Don't forget to go to Nurses PodCon and vote for where you want us to have the next PodCon. Maybe, who knows? Maybe Amy and Sarah can come to the next one. That would be cool. You know what? Maybe. I actually did vote. I voted for Las we Vegas. We both voted. We voted. <laughs> We're like, Vegas, Vegas, Vegas. Because I've actually never been. So oh. I think, um, you know, if if that is an opportunity, maybe we can join you guys. I have already marked it down in my calendar, Tina. Sarah, <laughs> we want to like, come. Yes. <laughs> Yay. I'm so excited. Well, as Cheyenne did, you can send me your stories or any kind of feedback that you have at Tina at goodnursebadnurse.com. And we're on social media at goodnursebadnurse. And I also want to remind you guys, even if you're a bad girl or a bad boy, be a good nurse. <laughs>